God wants his name and his glory spread throughout the entire universe. God wants his glory to be known among all the nations. You know, in 1949, there was approximately one million Christians in China. Uh, in 2010, they're estimated to be 49 million Christians in China. Uh, it is estimated, according to experts in religion in China, that by 2025, there will be 160 million Christians in China. And by 2030, their Christians will outnumber the Christians in America, Mexico, and Brazil. It's exploding that God's name is being glorified through all the nations. Mao Zedong, in the 40s, promised to eliminate religion. He has colossally failed because God wants his name through all the nations. Where did it all start, though? I mean, we've been reading about Jesus Christ and his, his life and his death and his resurrection. But where did it go from there? We have in our passage, passage today this, the literally entrusting of this kingdom message that's now consuming China to these apostles. Now, we're going to look at the 12 apostles, and they are unique, no question about it. But we are their spiritual heirs. And what has been given to them has been given to us in great measure. And so today, I just want to look at two things, really. The fact that you are messengers, that the Christian is literally a messenger of this great kingdom that has come. But also that, that Jesus gives us instructions. He gives us the mission, if you will, on how it happens and how it's going to go. So we're going to learn about messengers, and we're going to learn about the mission. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. We're going to look at it all together. First four verses are going to look at messengers, what it is, a unique feature about it that I hope you'll find encouraging. And then 5 to 15 will be more of the mission of this kingdom. So let's read it together in verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles were, are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. 
Okay, you, you see right off the bat, he's speaking to these messengers in the first four verses. Look at how he begins. And he called. Now, and is a simple little conjunction that reminds you to look what precedes it. And he called. In other words, it's drawing your mind back to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. You remember the passage three weeks ago? Jesus said, pray unto the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers out in the field. The field is white for harvest. Laborers need to go out in the field. Well, Jesus is now rectifying that. He's sending these 12 out. He's sending them out to work the field. Now, you probably remember Matthew 4. He had already called disciples. And in Matthew 9, he had called Matthew. So what's he doing here? Is he just filling out the 5 to 12? No, I don't think so. I think there's a major shift in what Jesus Christ is doing here. He introduces this word not used in the gospel before, apostles. He's calling them apostles. Now, now interestingly, the word apostle is actually used in secular literature for a person who is beginning a new naval expedition. So it was something new and something great. Jesus is calling these apostles now. They're no longer disciples. They're now apostles. Think about it. They had been with Jesus. They had listened to him. They had heard him preach about the kingdom. Remember 5, 6, and 7 of those chapters? All about the kingdom of God. Here's what life in the kingdom's like. He taught them, and they listened. And in verses, chapters 8 and 9, do you remember those 10 miracles that we saw? Can you imagine they just saw the power of Christ in ministry? They, so they're watching them, they're listening to them, and so they've been trained, they've learned, and now he's sending them out as apostles. So it's a shift in ministry. It's, it's, a, it's a passing the baton. They are now being entrusted with a message that Jesus had come to bring, and now they're coming to bring it. You'll notice, too, the difference in the fact that he calls them 12. Three times in these few verses, he references the number 12. Now, when something is repeated that frequently in this short of a, of a section of Scripture, you ought to ask, why? Why is it 12? Well, I think it's drawing our mind back to the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, as the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel form the nucleus of the people of Israel, so now these apostles are forming the nucleus of the people of God. I would even submit to you that these 12 apostles are, are really a completion of the 12 tribes of Israel. That Jesus is recon. So God did a great work. So when we look at Scripture and we want to see its continuity, God did a great work in calling Israel as a nation to be a light to the people. They failed. Jesus is now calling these 12 apostles to now be a light to the world. And that's what he's, he's tasking them to do. So Jesus is reconstituting ethnic Israel, which was a shadow of the kingdom, into the real kingdom. And I think we see that actually in Scripture. That, that they are now leading a new Israel, a spiritual Israel. That Israel is now being morphed or matured or completed into a spiritual Israel. Let me explain why I say that. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus, speaking to his apostles, says this. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve 
thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I think Jesus is saying you're to see them as the culmination of what God was doing in the Old Testament, and now it's come to bloom in these apostles who now form the foundation of the church. In fact, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that you're no longer aliens and strangers, your fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles. So these apostles are unique, even in Revelation 21. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So these apostles are unique, no question about it. And they were given a unique authority. Look at what he says. He, he says that he's sending them out to cast out demons, to give them authority, to heal every disease and every affliction. And if you were to look back at chapter 9, the same exact language is used of Jesus and what he did. So we're to see this unique raising up the 12. Jesus is turning the ministry. Now he's entrusting it to these apostles and is giving them the authority to do all that he did. This wasn't theirs by right. It wasn't theirs because they earned it. It was theirs because God had deemed to give it to them so that they could carry out the mission. Now, when you look at these, the unique apostle, when you look at the unique authority, we can tend to make them kind of Herculean. You know, we kind of make them almost, almost part human, part divine. And I don't, I don't want us to do that because they're passing to us. We are their spiritual heirs. We are their spiritual heirs in taking the same message that they were given, the same task that they were given, it was now given to us. In fact, let me remind you, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says that all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he's talking to the Corinthian church. And he says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So what I want you to see is that God did, through Christ, call these 12 apostles and give them authority. Don't want you to see them, though, as Herculean. I want you to notice the most remarkable thing about these 12 men was that they were not remarkable. They weren't remarkable in any way. You have, you have Peter, and you have Andrew, and you have James, and you have John, the first four mentioned. They were just fishermen. It doesn't take a demand of academic achievement to fish may take hard work, but they were just common fishermen. You look at Matthew, you look at Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, they think he was probably a revolutionary. What an, what an interesting blend. Matthew is collaborating with a foreign government. Simon the revolutionary is trying to overthrow a, a foreign government. You, you noticed, I'm sure, the last one was Judas. Jesus includes in his group a betrayer, no less. The others, Bartholomew and Andrew and, and, and Thomas and, um, and Thaddeus and James, son of Alphaeus. Not much is known about them, actually. They, they really kind of fade off. They finish strong because they're part of the foundation of the New Jerusalem. But you don't hear much about them. They're not politicians. They're not big key players in the community. They're not financially strong. I mean, when you look at this list of the 12, I mean, it breaks all the rules of our leadership books today. I mean, the leadership books of today are calling for movers and shakers, for those who have accomplished much. They're looking for, for key players, for key positions, that they've proved themselves, that they're smarter and stronger. 
Now, that may be fine in running a business, but in running a kingdom, it seems to be paradoxical. He inverts, he inverts it for us. It kind of draws my mind to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 26. He goes, who among you were wise when you were called? Who among you were of noble birth? He says, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. Now, I wonder here among us, how many have written, how many of us have written ourselves out of God's kingdom or out of God's picture or out of participating in God's kingdom because we don't seem to have a pedigree or a resume that we think others around us have? I mean, the most extraordinary thing about these is what? They weren't extraordinary. And how many of you have done that? I think we look at Jesus Christ calling people like we used to pick players on a football. So we had pick up football games after school all the time when I was growing up. And there'd be 10 or 12 of us in the street for touch football. And the two older guys would always be the captains, and, and, and they would always pick. They, they didn't, you know, I was a young kid at the time. They didn't start with me. They start with the biggest and the fastest and the strongest. You know, the worst thing in this situation is what? Be the last guy. Okay, I'll take him. You know, you know it's your turn to pick. Okay, take Tom. You know, let's bring him on. But, but it was. It was a terrible thing. I hope they pick me. I hope they pick me. Hope. Yeah, and, and, but he, he doesn't seem to do it that way. How many of you have considered yourself of absolute uselessness because you don't have a theological degree or you're not quick on your feet with words or you don't know the Bible as well as you probably should? Or you just remove yourself. Maybe even as Ray prayed that we get scared of people. We want to be liked by people. Jesus is calling us to be ambassadors. We are the heralds. Now, I know many of you are thinking, yeah, well, I mean, if I could raise the dead, or if I could cleanse some people with leprosy, then I'd be moving and shaking. But remember, Jesus has already addressed this in Luke 10. In Luke chapter 10, when he sends out the 72... And he gives them authority, and they come back rejoicing. The demons were subject to them at the name of Jesus. He said, don't rejoice that demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, if you're saved, rejoice in that. Rejoice that God has called you from darkness to light. Rejoice in his goodness and glory and power. That's what fuels ambassadorship, not having power. I mean, he, I, I think the authority given to these apostles, was unique. I, I don't see anybody raising the dead anymore. I don't think that's something that is just given you know, liberally to the church. But what he's given us is the Spirit of God. And he's given the gifts of God to us through the Spirit. That's why Martin Luther kind of included that great line in his beautiful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, the gifts and the spirits are ours. And then he says, and one little word shall fell him. In other words, Satan will fall at one little word of the man or the woman that's filled with the Spirit of God, walking in the gifts of God. So folks, let me encourage you that, that you with the Spirit of God, called of God, forgiven, chosen, adopted, that you are the ambassadors. It's been entrusted to you. We are the ones. that No one else has the message. Just the Christian has the message to herald. So you're the messenger. That's what you are. For the Christian here. For the non-Christian, if you haven't been called, 
you, you You haven't seen the value and the worth of Christ. You're not to herald. But you, the Christian, and filled with the Spirit, are to herald. Now, he gives us the mission. That's the messenger. That's the nature of the messengers. Now, look at the mission with me, because it's in verses 5 to 15. In 5 to 15, and there's really three parts to this that I'd like to explain to you. Uh, there's this mission. It has a specific direction. There's a speci- I want you to think of an arrow. When you shoot an arrow through the air, there's a specific direction or scope that his mission will go forth in. That's the first thing. We'll see that in verses 5 and 6. And then there's going to be a, a specific message that we as messengers bring. You're going to see that in 7 a, a specific message. It hasn't changed. It's the same message they had that we have. And then there's a specific strategy. There, there's kind of a, a way we do it. And so he wants to help us say, hey, you've got a mission, and if I'm going to give somebody an ambassadorship, they're going to represent me in another country. I'm going to be clear as to, hey, this is what I want you to say, and this is what I want you to do. And so he does that for us. The first thing, I think, is the specific direction of the mission. Now look at 5 and 6 with me. He says, these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we've got to explain this. And when you come across this, you definitely scratch your head and you wonder, what's he doing here? Is, what's he cutting out the Gentiles for? Is, he just, is this kind of this ethnocentrism? We just love Israel and we're just going to save Israel? No, not at all. Uh, try to follow this with me here. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. Matthew has done a marvelous job holding Jesus Christ as king to us through all these chapters we've studied. And remember, the king that was promised by God was first promised to Abraham that a seed, that all the nations would be blessed. That's what we're talking about today. And then in David, the promise becomes more clear. David, you're going to have a son. David was Jewish. And David was going to have a Jewish son who would be a king with a king that would reign forever. And so Jesus Christ's coming is a Jewish Messiah promised to a Jewish people according to Jewish scriptures. And so Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the Twelve was initially and primarily to the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation was supposed to be a light to the world, that they would preach and display the glory of God so that all the nations would come to God through their witness. They failed. Jesus Christ has come to complete the promise of God. So he's going to minister first to the nation of Israel. Now, that was only the first stage of this ever-expanding plan of God. We've already known, we've already seen Jesus minister to the Gentiles. right? Remember the centurion servant, a Roman Gentile servant that Jesus heals? Do you remember Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee to heal the Gadarean demoniac from the town of Decapolis, the, the Gentile man that was possessed with with a demon, that, that, that he was healed. You think about what Jesus said in Matthew 8, when he said that men and women will come from the west and the east, that's the Gentiles, and they'll dine at the table with Abraham. So the Gentiles were always part of God's plan. And they're a major part of God's plan. If you go to Matthew 24, Jesus says these words. He says, and the, and the gospel of the kingdom will go out to the ends of the world, and then the end will come. So, so all people are going to hear this gospel in Matthew 28. What's he say? He says, go into all the world, baptizing and teaching them in the name of Jesus. So, so the plan of God 
always included the Gentiles. But I want you to think of it like, a, like an earthquake tsunami, kind of this earthquake happens, and then the, 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 the power of the earthquake just kind of goes out in these concentric circles as it begins to just expand. It starts in Jerusalem, it goes to Samaria, it goes to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He said, but you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So when you read 5 and 6, you see the scope of his mission is to first lift up Israel by displaying Christ, and then all the nations are going to be brought into the knowledge. He says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. It's going to start in Jerusalem, and it's going to go out, and that's what it's done. That's why it's blowing apart in China right now, or or the global church, the South Global Church in Africa. These are expanding nations in terms of their Christian influence. So, so for us, what do we draw from this? What do we draw? How do we today as ambassadors look at five and six? Well, number one, we need to have a heartbeat for the nations, that we want the nations to know Christ. Now, folks, if this is a convicting point for you, then just repent of your, of your kind of myopic or myopic you know, process that I'm just worried about North Raleigh. We need to pray for having a greater concern for the nations. That God, the redemptive, the narrative theme in Scripture is God wants his name, particularly displayed through Christ, glorified among all the nations. That's his end goal. That's the end game. That's why Christ has come. And that's going to be done through us, having a concern for the nations. Some of you, by God's Spirit, will be drawn to go. Many of you will not. Some of you will go. We pray for that, that God would stir your heart, a concern for the nations and such a concern that it moves you to respond to the call of God to go. Now, there's no greater glory in being sent versus sending. We all can't go. So when I say that we're to have a concern for the nations to the ends of the earth, I don't mean at all for you all to go. I mean, there have to be here There have to be people here to send those who go. But I would say this to you, that even though you may not go to the ends of the earth, you're seeking to support those that do, but that you would be concerned about the earth that he's placed you on or the area that he's placed you on. In other words, I look at my life, and I kind of look at my life in concentric circles. Am I really being an ambassador of Christ to my family? Am I preaching the gospel to my family? come under great conviction that some of my relatives who know I'm a pastor, I've never had a face-to-face with them about the gospel. I mean, I've beat around the bushes when I've had opportunities, or they, maybe they've come to church, but I haven't just gone up to them and say, I love you, want to share this message of the kingdom with you, in a winsome way. You know, not bold and arrogant and, and kind of just fire and brimstone, but just, just a, I'm a unremarkable person with a remarkable message and just to share it with them. I've been greatly convicted by that, such that Carol and I have started to form plans to, to go see the particular aunt of mine to just say this. She's probably 85 years old, and uh, I don't think the Lord will give her many more years, and I want to do that. So we start with our families, and then we go outside our families to our workplaces or the community around us. I've been very impressed with many of you who have started up Bible studies at work. I mean, you're just, what you're doing is you're bringing wood to a place. God's got to light the fire, but, but you're engaging in the people around you. 
that, that you, you'll vocalize your commitments to truth and integrity in the gospel. Uh, I, I always love hearing that, you know. I'm not a huge fan of contact evangelism, which is kind of you knock on the door and say, hey, uh, yeah, I'm just down the road and want to tell you about Jesus Christ. We've done that before. We've even done it across the street a number of times. I'm not a huge fan of that cause, because it's just, it's, I don't know, it seems kind of sterile. They don't know you. They don't know that your message is any different than the Hare Krishna that came the week before or the Muslim that came the week before that. I, I like more friendship evangelism where they know your person. They know how you treat your wife. They know how you raise your children. They know how faithful you work. They know what kind of neighbor you are. And then from that pool of people, you're displaying and declaring the gospel. So, so be concerned about the nations, but also those right around you. And so ask the Lord, if you have failed in this, listen, repent. That's the glory of the gospel. We refresh ourselves on it. God, forgive me. Give me strength. Give me a renewed effort to have a concern for these people. Okay, so that's, that's the direction. That yes, we're to go to the nations, but folks, many of us won't go, so let's just go to those concentric circles. Think about who in your family, and, and, and fathers and mothers, you know, it begins with you teaching your children. Children aren't born Christians. They're born non-Christian. You're declaring and displaying the message of the gospel. But who in your community? I mean, who in your workplace can you begin praying for? Just asking God for grace to be able to intersect them with the hope that you have. So Scripture says, always be prepared to make a defense of the hope that's within you. So let's prepare for that. Okay, the second part of the mission that we see here is that there's not just a specific direction to go outward, but there's a specific message that we're to have. Look at, with me at... Um, 7 and 8, he says, As you proclaim, go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. You receive without pay and give without pay. So, so the first thing, that the message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you do, I think, know what this means. So Jesus comes and he inaugurates God's plan to begin reclaiming the world. So let's just go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Okay, we have nothing, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before God created everything, there's nothing. There's just a beautiful fellowship of the triune God. Then God creates everything, and it's all good. It's all good, good, good. It's very good, he says. The man and the woman, are they're in his kingdom. They're living under his rule. They're really vice regents. They're not simply servants, but they are, they are stewards of God's kingdom. God's kingdom was perfect, but not complete. They were given responsibility to tend, to care, protect the garden, that they would bring to completion. They would bring to fruitfulness all that God had made. That was the plan. They enjoyed God. They enjoyed one another. But then, of course, we know Genesis 3 follows 2, and in 3, you see that the man and woman were not satisfied. They wanted more. They didn't want this. They didn't want the reign of God to be over them. They wanted to be God. They distrusted his goodness. Why won't he let us eat from that tree? They begin to question God's goodness, which is just the beginning point of collapse. And so then they threw off his, his wonderful yoke of leadership, and they assumed it for themselves. And, of course, that earned them the removal of the garden and the separation from God. And from Genesis 3 on, you see this litany of just human drama and human trial. You see Cain and Abel, 
One kills the other. You see in Genesis 5, they die, they die, they die. Eight times it's repeated through that refrain. And then you just see society goes sideways. This alienation from God brought conflict and alienation from us. Folks, the reason our world is the way it is is because our desire to not live in his kingdom under his reign. And this is the beauty of the announcement is God's kingdom has now come. Now, think about it. So as I go through the history of the Bible, you see this just litany of problems. But then God raises up Israel because God made a promise that he would restore his kingdom. And so he raises up the ethnic nation of Israel to be a faint glimpse of a kingdom that he was coming to bring. But they failed until Jesus comes. And that's why when Jesus comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. I am the kingdom. I am the king of the kingdom. And I have the authority to bring it. And the authority to not just declare it, but then he evidenced it with all those miracles he's done. And so Jesus is now like from heaven comes the son of man upon the earth with the kingdom. And now he begins to display its beauty and its truthfulness through the power. But now he takes it and entrusts it to his disciples. You share the same message. It's the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's why Matthew kind of yokes those healing passages with the preaching passage, because he's showing the two are inseparable. In other words, the reason that Jesus healed and the reason the apostles healed is to validate or to give, to give demonstration to the reality of the kingdom. He is demonstrating the power of the kingdom by these glimpses and by these demonstrations of healing and raising the dead and cleansing the leper. I mean, can you imagine? It'd be hard to believe you're bringing a kingdom if you can't get over the common cold. But Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know the kingdom has come to you. So that would be pretty powerful. But not only do these miracles display the validity of the kingdom, they also show us the character of God. God desires to alleviate suffering. God desires to display compassion. I mean, we live in an old order that's passing away. In fact, in Revelation, the, kind of the end goal that I was talking about, in Revelation 21 we read, Then I saw new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That's what we're looking for. The kingdom is kind of a demonstration. It's a down payment showing us this is what the kingdom's going to be like. Raising the dead, cleansing the leper, healing the sick, freeing the demonized. That's a picture of the kingdom that we're announcing. Now, that's a message that we have. That, that when we look at this now, so what message do we offer? Do we try to solve the riddles of life? Are we called to fix all the human problems that have come? No. The ambassador preaches that the kingdom of God is at hand. We're to present and to prepare and to proclaim that, that God has come with good news. Now, listen, this is different than the religions of the world. If you stack up the major world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, they all give good advice. They all give advice about how to relate to God. They all tell you what you need to do 
to meet God. They all instruct you how you need to live to have a better life. Or they all tell you and give you advice on how to, what you need to do uh, to find God or to enjoy God. But Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity is a declaration of good news. Christianity is simply saying this. God has sent his son to die for our sins that we might live with God forever. So Christianity is a declaration. It's not advice. Christianity is saying this is what God has done for us in Christ. It's a totally different message. There isn't advice on how you can kind of fix yourself and get yourself primped up before you go to God. It's no, 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 this is who God is, and this is what God has done for us. Now, the response to the good news is just repentance. It's just simply, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me of my sins. Father, cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Thank you for Christ for saving me. There's nothing you bring to the table but the sin that you need removed. So there's a huge difference between the religions of the world. They're all the same in the sense that they give advice, Christianity declares good news. And that's what we share, that God has come toward us in Christ in mercy and grace to forgive us. And that by faith and repentance, we are received as a child. That, that, that's what we announce. But we announce it with deeds of compassion. Now, I don't think he's given to us the authority to raise the dead. I spent a number of years in a charismatic church, and uh, no dead were raised when I was there. And, uh, and I mean, people, I, I don't say that uh, facetiously. I mean, a lot of people think these are ours to do. And, and I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe that miracles have ceased at the time of the apostles. But I, but I think the apostles were given a unique authority uh, that was establishing the credibility uh, that the gospel that they were preaching. But I think that we do bring acts of compassion, that we are called to, to clothe the naked. We are called to feed the poor. We are called to do these acts. And, and we don't do these acts as a manipulative way to somehow get them to like the gospel more because God has to open the eyes of the blind. But we do them as a display of the character of God. And, and James tells us that. He says, what good is it when you say, you know, be warm and well-fed when you don't feed them? It, it, it kind of works contrary to the nature of the gospel that you preach. So I, I'm glad that we're moving a little more forward in terms of serving um, these teachers, that's an act of kindness. It's a display of grace. They have, they're not serving us, but we're serving them. It's really a picture of the gospel. We're trying to, you know, as we hopefully towards the fall move with this Jobs for Life, we're taking people who've done nothing for us, but we're saying, no, we want to help you prepare yourself to get a better job. That's a display of the gospel. So we, we don't want to put works and words against each other. We want them to dance together. You have to preach the gospel. Jesus is the only name by which men must be saved. So the gospel has to be preached, but there has to be works associated with it. Okay, the last part of this 5 to 15 is a a, a specific strategy. Look with me in verses 9 through 15. You see him say, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Take no bag for your journey, two tunics or sandals or staff. He says, whatever town or village you enter, if you enter a home and it's worthy, then enter it and stay there until you depart. I, I, think, I think the strategy of the ambassadors or the messengers that we are is to simply go in faith. That, that he's telling these apostles, don't worry about the money you take. Don't take any money. Just go. There's a sense of urgency there. 
to go. And if you find a house that will receive you and hear your words, then stay there. Don't move from house to house. Back then, traveling philosophers would move from house to house to find the best digs, really. What's the best house and the best accommodations? And they keep moving around, bringing shame to those that didn't have as much. And I think Jesus is telling his apostles, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about all the provisioning you have to do. Just go with the message. But then he also prepares us. He says, but, but, but watch the expectations. He says, some will believe, but many won't. Look at 14 and 15. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. This is a significant prejudgment. So if a Jew was to walk through Samaria, Samaria, they were half-breeds. They were originally... Uh, they were originally Jewish, but they mixed with other nations, and so they were not pure. And so they would go through, so they were hated by the Jews. And so if a Jew had to walk through Samaria, they wanted to disassociate themselves, even from the dust of Samaria. And so they would shake the folds of their clothes, and they would shake the dust from their sandals. We don't even want your dust on us. So much do we want to disassociate. Well, I don't think for the Christian ambassador, we're not looking to do this as, a, as simply a sign of careless judgment. But there is, a, there is a disassociating with a person who profoundly rejects the message that you have. We don't do it caustically. We don't do it casually. We don't do it rudely. We just recognize that there is a separation that will take place. So how do we... How do we take that into today? Well, I would say this, as, you, as you're hopefully thinking through those concentric circles of your life, you're a messenger and you have a mission, and Jesus has entrusted this to us, so what do we do? Well, first I would just say, before you leave this church, I want you thinking, I, I have to engage this task by faith. I have to, he told them, don't take any money, you'll be provided for. And the, the way that he provided for them is, is obviously the people that you're ministering the gospel to are the ones that are caring for you. But in our context here, I would say that as they were trusting him for the material provisions, I would ask you to trust him for the spiritual opportunities. I mean, I, I pray for people. God, open a door with this person. That's what it says in Colossians 4.4. 4. Paul asked the church at Colossae, he says, pray for me that a door would be open for God's word, that I could declare the mystery of Christ. So do we pray for that? I have a list of my neighbors that I pray for just about every day. Give me opportunities to share. Open the door for me. I don't want to come crashing through with a Mack truck. I, I want to be able to talk about the things of life and introduce the gospel in those various conversations. So have faith to believe that God will do this for you. I'm calling you to believe. I'm calling the Christian here to believe that God will warm up the hearts of people so that as you place the seeds of the gospel that they'll find a soft and fertile ground. So I pray for faith. But secondly, I would also be urgent about it. There is a sense of urgency. Jesus says, don't do any packing. Just get moving. Don't worry about what you're going to take. I would say there's an intentionality and urgency that we need to have. I don't want to create a fear. I don't want to create a fastness. I don't want you thinking, okay, I've got to get out of it. No, and what I mean by urgency is intentionality. And, and the threat here is I think that they profited from late traveling. In other words, they weren't bringing up a bunch of stuff. I, I find that the piles of gold that we acquire 
can be a distraction from the mission of God. I, I, I find that, that the more that we have, the more, encumbered, the more encumbered we are, the more distracted we are from the urgency of this message. You know, when Carol and I went overseas, uh, we um, got rid of everything to go overseas. And for many of us, that would seem to be a very precarious, very frightening thing. And uh, I think we would testify that it was a very freeing thing. It, it was very freeing. Everybody can't be asked to do that. I'm not saying, hey, no, that's what we did, so you have to do that. I'm not saying that. I'm just being one to testify to you that there is a freedom in being unencumbered. And we in Western culture here, we have many things. And many things make us worried about losing them. And when we are worried about our possessions or our jobs being in peril or our homes or our lifestyles, then it really does make us go very silent. And I, I, was, I was challenged when I was preparing this about the Christians in the letter to Hebrews in 1034 where he says, uh, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. And I wonder if we knew that, if we knew that what we have coming is far greater than what we're holding on to so tightly now, I wonder if we would be more free and urgent and intentional with the message that we have with people. And, 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 then, and then last, I would say, in terms of application for us on this 9 to 15, would be uh, a greater weight of what our responsibility is. In other words, do you get it? You and I are ambassadors. We've been entrusted for this generation, for North Raleigh. We've been entrusted with a message that God has given to us through his son. So that's our message to bring. Now, has the weight of that rested upon your soul rightly? I'm not talking guilt. I don't want you to. Guilt does nothing for us as a church. True conviction of God's spirit will do much, but guilt won't do anything. So I'm, not, I'm talking about the weight of the responsibility and the privilege together, the sweetness and the heaviness of it. He says this. Notice in 15 it says that to those who won't receive you or your words, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Sodom and Gomorrah, if you're not familiar, didn't turn out well. They, got, they received a serious judgment but it seems that when you present the gospel to people now there's greater light and there's greater knowledge and so there seems to be a gradation of punishment based upon what a person knows and so those of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't know the gospel in the fullness that you will now declare it to others. And so there's a greater sense of responsibility, which I think is a greater sense of weight that we feel. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. We need to remember that we are triumphing. It's a word. And through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's the ambassadorship. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. And then he says, who is sufficient for these things? We bear news, good news. And and it has a weight to it. And I want us to feel the weight, not in a negative way, but in a profound way. You've been tasked 
with a glorious task. And people are going to come. Jesus says, those from outside my sheepfold will come to my voice. They will come. And we are the ones declaring the message. So I, I, I want to turn to prayer now because I know this is probably feeling like a, a heavy sermon. I don't want it to feel that way. I want you to understand God has entrusted to us, the church of Jesus Christ, to be messengers of this kingdom. And then he's given us this mission. And the mission is simply this that it's to go to the nations, it's to start at home, that this message has the, this mission has the same message. Paul, did, Paul said, what I received, I passed on. There's no new message we need to bring, the one that they brought, and we want to do it by faith, and we want to do it with intentionality, and we want to do it with a sense of, of weightiness, not weightiness. I want you to feel like you're bringing the antidote to a town that will bring them healing. You would take that goal very seriously. You would feel responsible, but you would be glad that you're bringing hope to people. That's what you have. So let's pray now. And this is a, a time we can be um, brief and loud so that we can hear you. And uh, we'll just have a few of us pray. I'll start and then an elder will close us. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would cause your spirit to implant within us a desire and um, strength uh, to, to think upon these things, consider them, and, and then, Father, to move forward in faith with intentionality uh, to those that you raise up in our mind, Father. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.